is Danielle Pacquantro. I attend Grove City College and am an intern at the Clarity Foods Policy Institute this summer. I have the honor of introducing our next speaker, Michelle Lessinger-Quigan. Michelle is the co-founder, president, and chief executive officer of Global Nexus Alliance, a nonprofit humanitarian organization, and president of Sunesis Nexus LLC, an independent consulting company. Most recently, Michelle worked as Google's chief technology officer for the public sector and chief innovation evangelist. She began her career in technology as an image scientist and systems engineer, where her affinity for technology applications as an image, uh, for operational needs led her to be the youngest chief engineer in the history of her company. Michelle's career in government began post 9-11 when she was recru recruited to lead change, innovation, and organizational transformation, and she became one of the youngest people ever sworn in as a chief executive in the United States government. She then led the cultural and technical integration of national security and held senior leadership positions in a variety of government offices, such as being DNI's senior representative to the Secretary of Defense's Intelligence Surveillance Reconnaissance Task Force. Michelle's work in national security foreign and domestic policy and technology has earned her many awards and honors, such as being on Washington's Life's Power 100 list of influencers in 2004, and being one of the most seven powerful women to watch by Entrepreneur Magazine in 2014. Her expertise in technology and government informed the rest of her career as a global consultant of both the public and private sectors. In addition to consulting, Michelle also serves on various commercial and nonprofit board of directors and strategic advisory boards. She is active in science, technology, engineering, and math, and leadership outreach for students in K-12 and at universities. Michelle earned a BS in physics and engineering science with honors from Seattle Pacific University and MS in optics from the University of Rochester. She is a graduate of Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government program for senior managers in government and a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Capstone Fellow. Despite the fact that my own technological skills do not go past the use of my iPhone, Michelle is an inspiration to me. This past April, I traveled to Claire Booth Blue's Policy Institute's Western Women's Summit in Santa Barbara. There, we were all honored to hear, to hear Michelle speak about her journey through technology, its integration in government, and the obstacles she's faced. I know her speech will be just as motivating to us here today. So please help me enjoy uh, welcoming Mrs. Michelle Westlander Quaid. It's great to be here with you today. How many of you have had somebody tell you that what you're trying to accomplish is impossible? I love that. That's a challenge. You can imagine that our forefathers, our founding fathers, were likely told that what they were trying to accomplish was impossible. When they sought to, quote, dissolve the political bands which have connected them to another, that being the king of England, and to create a new country where governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. If they had not had the courage of their convictions and risked everything, their friends, family, careers, finances, even their lives, to accomplish what others thought were impossible, we wouldn't be here today. 
they created a society where the status you were born into didn't have to be the status where you stayed. They honored the individual and recognized that people wanted a hand up, not a hand out. And they created a society where, to quote Knight's Tale, if you've seen that movie, you can change your stars. As Alan Turing said, sometimes the people who no one imagines anything of are the people who do something no one can imagine. So some might consider it impossible to start at a low status in life and be successful, but there's a lot of great examples. And I'll tell you from my own personal uh, experience, I was uh, I had a single parent mom to work below the U.S. defined poverty level, never knew my dad. And a lot of people look at that statistically and say, wow, you know, that's a rough start. But to our earlier speaker, you know, it shapes you, it molds you, it makes you who you are. And uh, a lot of people thought, given my socioeconomic status, that maybe I wouldn't amount to much. And some had the indiscretion to say that my earshot, including teachers. But that only made me more determined to prove them wrong. But I was extremely fortunate that I had others, teachers, mentors, who looked past my circumstances and they saw potential. And they encouraged me. And that was really important. And through hard work and education, I was able to change my stars. I was a valedictorian in my high school and got the science award and then went on into college. And I started initially in physics because my physics teacher in high school inspired me. And my study buddies were all electrical engineers and nobody was technical in my family. I would have been really exposed to that. I thought, this is really more interesting. When we started getting into the esoteric theoretical physics, I thought, I want to do applied. So, Latin for punishment. Beginning of my junior year, I added a second major in engineering science and still graduated in four years. I don't recommend this because I didn't have a social life in college, <laughs> uh, but I, I did it. And then I moved on uh, to my master's. And I was thinking at the time, I've always been fascinated with space. I want to travel into space someday. And so though I loved theater, creative writing, and, and also history, and, and so many different subjects, I thought, I'm going to do the technical track. And that's what had really directed my undergraduate decisions and optics was interesting. I had done a senior project in optics and so I decided I'll look into the best universities and, and I was able to get into uh, the top two in the country went to the one that gave me most financial aid. <laughs> and when I said to people I was going into optics, they usually got, this was, you know, it, it was uh, in the late 80s and they kind of caught their head or, was, or actually early 90s and said, well, I suppose we need more people to make now you all will laugh because you know we can do with optics today. Eyeglasses, man, I worked with spy satellites. So I applied for the US astronaut program as soon as I qualified and later learned that the reality is unless you're a PhD or you're a fighter pilot, you're not going to even be considered. I don't even bother looking at your application. But I got recruited into America's other space program, national security space. And that's a career I didn't even know existed. I had no idea, but it was an opportunity to immediately get engaged and start using my skills that I, uh, from my studies. And so it wasn't the career I planned, but it was very rewarding. And so there's a life lesson there that sometimes the detours can be very interesting and rewarding. And you may later look back and realize you were exactly where you were meant to be at that given time to make the most difference. And that's a wonderful so where you start is not where you have to stay, but it is a key building block as you move on in your career. And throughout my career, every job I had, I built on that for my next 
uh, role in it and continue to expand my sphere of influence. So I started as a system engineer and image scientist. So I was working on developing new capabilities, and I mentioned working with satellite systems, which was really interesting. And then evolved more into a consultant advisor role. So looking at how do we improve in current operations. I worked a lot with the Department of Defense and the intelligence community and identifying new technology support for mission. And some of the big challenges we're trying to do was in you know, a very bureaucratic environment that had policies that were very risk averse. And so then I also worked on, in the time uh, there in the uh, mid-90s, on a distributed architecture. This is something we take for granted, but this is back in the client server days. And we were using web, which was really new then, to allow access to data and information. And we also employed virtual collaboration. And I love this story because it was a bunch of gamers from the National Security Agency who played Dungeons and Dragons. You guys know Dungeons and Dragons? So they had all these virtual worlds, and they said, can you imagine if we took this virtual world and created something like it on a national security computer system? And so though we're doing operations all around the world, and we all live in our you know, own facilities, maybe don't interact with people globally, if we create that virtual environment, people can come into those virtual rooms, they can start to share information, they can build relationships. So think Dungeons and Dragons mixed with Facebook. I mean, at the time, when we were using this tool called Collaborative Virtual Workspace, people were like, you could really build relationships with a virtual tool online, which people get married <laughs> via reading <laughs> online now. So we know, duh, yeah, of course you could do that. But back then, that was really a strange, uh, strange concept. And so that shared situational awareness, people working across the national security community, being able to come into a virtual environment and build those relationships and share that information was really key to having that shared situational awareness. However, though we did a great exercise with the Marine Corps and show how we could really reduce timelines and be relevant even in a national security community to a tactical fight, many people kind of folded their arms and said, yeah, that's interesting, but that's not the way we do business here. Then 9-11 happened. All of a sudden, those bureaucrats and people, purveyors of the status quo, the Klingons, as one of my colleagues would uh, call it, all of a sudden, they were interested in talking with those heretics, those people with those crazy ideas of how we would do business differently, those who think different. And so I had the opportunity to present to some very high levels of leadership. In fact, I had just been moved from this area out to Colorado, and I was working with a lot of cross-discipline type activities, and I was here on 9-11. I was actually at CIA headquarters on 9-11, giving a briefing. And then somebody comes into the room, they seem very distracted, and said a plane just hit the Pentagon. It's like, whoa, okay, something's going down. And, uh, and so I ended up staying in town for two weeks. I briefed up to the second in command of the intelligence community. Was able to tell them about the things we were trying to do in response just in those first few weeks to combat the war on terrorism with the significant cultural and policy barriers and the impediments to bring in the new technology and changes the way we do business. And so eventually I went back home. I had just moved into a new house a few months prior. Still had you know, tons of boxes, but I was perpetually on the road. So when most people weren't flying, in 2002, I had logged over 100,000 miles on United alone. <laughs> so I was doing a lot of travel. Uh, but I had an opportunity then in October, the brand new director of the National Imagery and Mapping Agency, now known as the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, Jim Clapper, who's now our director of national intelligence. He started two days after my can you imagine how crazy that would have been? I had the opportunity to brief him in, in mid-October on some of the things we were doing. Now, he had been kind of introduced uh, informally as, you know, Michelle's, you know, a change agent and, and um, 
a trusted agent. And so he wouldn't hear, what's, what's this thing you're doing? You know, what's this new way of doing business? And so there's this crowded room, we're showing them the virtual tool and how we fought, you know, we we're fighting to try to extend then NSA's networks into non-NSA facilities, which is a huge policy battle. And he wanted to be an advocate. He had that kind of background. He thought this was the greatest thing. And I'm like, yes. The next day, my boss and the colonel that I work for, so the boss of my company, a colonel, they told me that somebody in that room, a senior executive from uh, the NEMA, had gone to the senior executive that owned my contract and had uh, said some uh, in incorrect things and said I was trying to tell a tool that was actually built by an FRC and was trying to get me fired, and that she had said, quote, you tell her that I will pull her clearances and have her fired if she dares to breathe the word collaboration. And he said, you're right, she's wrong, she doesn't want to listen, you need to lay low for a while because you can't afford to lose you. And I, that day I thought, wow, you know, we, we've got to change, we just suffered this horrible terrorist attack and that some person doesn't have an open mind change and she wouldn't listen to the truth. And so that was a rough day. And in the end, I'll tell you, we're all friends. She realizes now that that's the way you know we're supposed to do business. Never got an apology, but never expected one. <laughs> but I tell you, that colonel risked his career to defend me. And those are the friends you keep for life. And he is a dear friend to this day. And so um, you, find, you find those like-minded individuals. So then I had an opportunity, nine months to the day of 9-11, same director Clapper, his buddy over at NSA, then General Mike Hayden, and he said, I want you to brief at our quarterly about what we're doing across intelligence community to, to try to connect the dots, to try to integrate the agencies, to try to integrate America's eyes and ears, and so we know truly what's going on. Well, that created quite a ruckus. All the staffs on the various sides. In fact, I was summoned to NSA at ODARC 30 a couple days before this quarterly, demanded to get this briefing, didn't even make it halfway through in a packed room, and told to stop and to leave, and that this would not be on the quarterly agenda. And so I had a very full day driving around the Beltway, and I was thinking, wow. But oh no, Jim Clapper is a very strong old man. He made sure it was on the agenda. However, they could be in the last briefing. And so the day of the quarterly comes, my colonel friend uh, shows up to be there to testify, if need be, on what I did or did not say, what did transpire. And uh, they ran the agenda long, and they said, oh, directors, there's not time for Michelle's briefing. Oh, no, they wanted to hear it. So there I stood, was able to tell them what we've been doing for the past nine months. And ultimately to say, here's the cultural barriers, the policy barriers, and if we don't overcome the cultural barriers, and allow ourselves to change the policy, enabling us to adopt the technology that would enable us to change our business practices. We will continue to suffer these kind of failures, and really you two, as America's eyes and ears, can take the lead and start to tear down these barriers and create this cultural change. And Jim Lapper turned to his friend Mike Hayden and said, I think we should do this. And I said, John, I agree. So I finally went home and started unpacking. <laughs> And so, four weeks later, I get a call from Jim Clapper. He says, Michelle, will you come into government? Will you help me lead the change that you propose that we make? And so I was literally looking at my surround sound system from Best Buy, wondering if they would take the box in the back. And so I decided, brand new house, I already lived in, you know, pack up the boxes, I'm gonna move back to DC, because that was my calling at the time. I never dreamed of going into government. So the day before my 33rd birthday, I started actually on a business trip with my, um, with my boss and one of my colonel friends. I was sworn in as a senior executive of the U.S. government, as a general flight officer of Poland. 
an amazing opportunity to lead at a very young age, because I was young to be a senior executive. And, and I tell you, is I have told so many times within my career, you know, you're too young to hold that role. And of course, at that young age, people looked at me and said, oh, you're too young to be in that senior position. But if we look at world history, and even American history, sometimes people very, very young served in very senior leadership roles because they had exactly the qualities the country needed at the time. But you know what's funny? When I was in my 40s, I still were talking I was too young. They seemed to forget that there were some, actually some people who served as president of the United States at that age. But wait a minute, they're all men, and I'm a woman. I'm a girl. You hear that? The girl? So, you know, maybe rules are different that way. But, you know, that's a tactic some will use. They'll try to discredit you because you're a female or because you're too young, and don't let them do it. They'll say it's a man's job. Well, we know those folks, they're Neanderthals, they haven't realized that it isn't just a man's job, but it's a tactic they'll use. And as an engineer and scientist, I was often the only woman in the room. And even as a senior executive, I was often the only woman in the room, sometimes with a lot of stars around the table. But you know what? Forget what they say. Be the right woman for the job. So I had the challenge to help lead organizational transformation and help people innovate and then figuring out how we could adopt modern technology in uh, an era where we're working with policies literally from 1947. A lot of things had changed since 1947. And so as a senior government policymaker, it was really helpful that I knew technology, I knew the art of the possible, I'd also been boots on the ground out in Iraq and Afghanistan, and oh, by the way, my male senior executive colleagues who declined to go, but yet I volunteered to go, so I guess that was a woman's job. And I had a great insight from the field having the boots on the ground. You could see what people were trying to accomplish, and you know the art of the possible, and you make it happen. And that's what earned me the call sign warrior goddess from the special ops community, so that was cool. So, uh, people told me and my team many times, what you are trying to do is impossible. It'll never happen. The bureaucracies are too big. The culture is too long. Decades of this culture. It'll never change. It's a suicide mission. Um, and sometimes it felt like that. But I would remind my team members, what they are threatening us with is words. Our lives are not on the line. And we are sitting at the table representing people who don't have a seat at the table, who are risking their lives for our freedom. So you have to keep that perspective. Because people will try to threaten you in many different ways. And I'll tell you, coming from industry and going into the government, I got threatened probably all the tricks in the book by the purveyors of the status quo who were threatened by what I was doing, but it was great. What do you think, fire me, I'm gonna go back to industry and make more money? I am here for a reason. I have a mission to do. And so that kind of makes you unstoppable, if that's what you're doing for that higher calling. And so, it was really important to not be limited by how things were today, to see how they could be available. So, and so we were able to, I had somebody had told me at one point, you know, Michelle, I really thought what you guys were trying to do, you know, it was like hell would freeze over first. And I looked at my smile and I said, it's getting pretty cold. <laughs> so we were able to do the impossible. So after a period of time serving as senior executive in the U.S. government, I decided I could do more good outside government than anything. I've been on both sides. I saw a lot of complacency set again, and I thought, I'm going to go do something different. Why not go work for one of the most innovative companies in the world? And so I had the opportunity to go to mentioned in the introduction. And so, so many people had only known me as a senior executive in the U.S. government, they're like, oh, 
but I had culture shock coming from the government to Google. And I said, no, going from industry to the government was a culture shock. All of a sudden, I was surrounded by my fellow innovators. I'm an innovator by nature, and Google's just booting with them. And they have this great virtuous culture where they bring in innovators and they empower you with the technology you need. You're not limited by bandwidth, processing power, storage, as people in government doing critical missions still are today. And so it, it was a wonderful environment. However, I have to tell you, it was very funny. So um, I came into this one interview, and one of the guys who works in the DC staff and policy actually worked on the Republican side. We didn't talk politics, but he knew I came from national security. And he says to me, you realize this is a very left-leaning, democratic company. Kind of like a foreboding, forewarning. And I looked at him and I said, well, they're open to diversity. <laughs> so yes, there are some conservatives uh, sprinkled throughout Google and, uh, and in Silicon Valley. But just like in Hollywood, maybe not as vocal <laughs> as the others. So, it was a great experience, I tell you, it was wonderful. The founders had this statement, you know, it's failure is an option. Because we are not risking failure, we're risking irrelevant. And they also said, dare to be audacious and have a healthy disregard for the impossible. And I love that, because I felt like my team and I and government had done that, and so it was great to be surrounded by a bunch of people who had that philosophy. So ultimately, I went and started my own consulting business, Sinesis uh, Nexus. And Sinesis uh, chose that word because it knowledge, wisdom, insight. I had so many people say, you know, your experiences from your career, would you please come consult? It was an opportunity to actually work with a broader group of people and to help to bring my expertise from my career and help them work internationally with various companies and governments, public and private sector. And looking at executive leadership, innovation, and cultural transformation. And also my, my husband, who's a recently retired Lieutenant Colonel in the U.S. Air Force, a combat veteran, and I, we had, we worked in the National community uh, together and we saw so much of the techniques, tactics, and procedures, TTPs as we've called them, that we took for granted in the national security community. Some things like remote sensing, satellite imagery. In the humanitarian sector where we've done official work or even volunteer work, they weren't even aware of those capabilities. Or if they were aware, they had no idea how to apply them to their mission or even if they didn't know how, how they could work. And so our vision in, in standing up the Global Nexus Alliance was to be able to take that expertise to the humanitarian sector. And so I'd say, based on my life experiences, there are some really key attributes for success. And I love this quote. It said, you know, whatever women do, twice as well to be considered half as good. Have you heard that? And then there's also an additional thing on that goes with that. Luckily, this is not difficult. I have that on my Luckily, my husband is a strong man and he makes us money. So, <laughs> as they say, Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards and in high heels, right? So you have to combat that stereotype. You don't look like an engineer. I heard that so many times. I'm like, what does that mean? Because I don't have a thick glasses and a pocket protector. Uh, and so I love the Twitter campaign that started, you know, you, you know, I look like an engineer, of course I had participated in that. But I was a rare engineer indeed. If you have technical expertise plus social and communication skills, that's great job security. And so I have many people say that it's great, you know, you're not like the normal engineer in this area. But an ability to translate really complex concepts into something people can understand. These are often the decision makers, they don't have a technical background. And being able to translate between the technical jargon and plain English. So if you can't be able to communicate to get that buy-in, then you won't be successful, so that's important. And I did it in high heels. So resourcefulness is also important as well. I saw what needed to be done, and I figured out how to do it. 
And then I didn't stand by and wait for somebody else to do it. I just did it. And a lot of times, it's funny, I've had people look at me, especially as a senior executive, and when I went up to the Michelle, how did you play in your career? You know, you served at really high levels at such a young age, and I said, absolutely no planning involved. I saw what needed to be done, and I did it. And I had the courage of my convictions. And I had good days, and I had bad days. Like I told you, days when I was starting with my job, I thought, whoa, this is amazing. But then live to see another day and have amazing opportunities to have a positive impact. And creativity. You know, see things how they could be. Don't be limited how they are. And don't wait for the written requirement, someone to tell you what to do. Just see what needs to be done. Know they are the possible and make it happen. Take it action. And being decisive is so important. No paralysis through analysis. A lot of times I said very high-level meetings, and people couldn't make a decision. And that's really bad because not making a decision is a decision in itself and has impacts. And I'll tell you, when you are sitting in a meeting with superiors, be afraid to speak up. And you would be surprised. It's lonely at the top. And sometimes just because you're well, the boss doesn't mean that you have all the answers. And if you thoughtfully listen and you have an idea, speak up with appropriate deference and your idea. We never know. There was many times I was faced in that kind of situation and spoke up, and the leader was desperately looking for an idea, something they could work with. And the fact that you spoke up meant so much, and you were working with That's a great idea. It's something we can work with, something you know, to build upon, and sharing insights, and having the courage of your convictions. And integrity is golden. Never compromise that. It's amazing how rare it can be these days. Ensure that your word is your bond, and be straightforward. Tell it like you see it with appropriate deference as needed, and demonstrate that trustworthiness and discretion. Because if you do, that will make you invaluable to leaders. And I was often, many times, the director of a national agency, they could take one person with them to a meeting to other high leaders across government. I was the person. And so you can be that trusted plus one. So some people with the humblest of beginnings, despite the impossible odds, have become great leaders. And Reagan's one of them. And what are some of the principles of Reagan? Freedom, faith, family, sanctity and dignity of human life, American exceptionalism, the founders' wisdom and vision, lower taxes, limited government, peace through strength, anti-communism, and belief in the and so when people, it, we need people in roles throughout our society, not just in politics, but in every career field that share conservative values. I think that is so critically important because some in our society are trying to create the ruling class, the political elites, and the working class, which is everyone else. And I don't know about you, but to me that sounds a lot like communism and socialism, which seems to be all the rage of some of you between those left. And you know, it's worked. Where? It's been tried all around the world and failed. So why in the world do we think it's going to work here? I think that shows a lot of ignorance and arrogance because somehow doing here in America is going to work better. Our founding documents were created, a government for the people, of the people, by the people. And we must fight to preserve those rights of the individual and to prevent that expansion of government. And, and getting people out of office who are only serving special interest groups and getting people in office who are working to support the individual those people who elected them. And, and I think we, the important thing with conservative values is realizing that people are smart enough to govern themselves and the power to the people, and that's what our country is based on, power of the individuals. And if we don't uphold that, we'll cease to function as the founding fathers um, originally envisioned for this country.
So I'll give you a fun story um, I shared at Western Women's Summit. I went to speak at CU Boulder. They had uh, this kickoff of innovation series, and I was the kickoff speaker for the whole school year. And so I spoke to this packed house. Everybody, every seat was filled. People sitting on the stairs, on the floor, standing in the doorways, spoke for an hour and talked about Google and innovation. It took 30 minutes of Q&A. And when the last question was over, there was one man remaining. And he comes up to me and he says, why do you support them? And I said, excuse me? And he says, why are you supporting them? I realized he probably wasn't going to tell me who them was, so I had to figure this out. And then I remembered, oh, an article had come out about me serving on the board of a conservative technology group that was looking at turning data into insight and, and, and into votes. And I said, oh, you mean the conservatives? And he looks at me and I said, well, I'm a constitutional conservative. He says, oh, the Constitution is outdated. And I said, oh, no, it's not. It is an, an amazing document that stood the test of time, and we would do well to uphold it. And he continued to throw one barb after another at me, and I had a thoughtful, calm response to every single one of them. It was really interesting. You could see the cognitive dissonance in this man, because he clearly had the stereotype that anybody who knows technology, of course, is a liberal. And conservatives are so ignorant of technology, they're so backwards. And then I just spent an hour and a half proving my credentials in this sector, and I am a diehard conservative. <laughs> and so it was great in that he was parroting the cliches of the left instead of having a thoughtful response of his own. And so every time he threw something at me, I had a thoughtful response and he had another bullet. So he just tried another attack. And so that's what I mean, is having people, you have the credentials, and to prove that, yeah, I have a brain, I have a good head on my shoulders, and I think this way, why? Because I think this is the way things need to be. And upholding the individual, power to the people. And isn't it interesting that those who preach tolerance are often the most intolerant of other people's views? Um, so personal insights from my career. The biggest barriers I've seen the collaboration, you'll see this in the workplace, is the culture, it's the people. And as you are further apart, the ability to collaborate can be uh, even more uh, impaired, except for the virtual capabilities as well. And the policies, which are the business practices. And technology is the easy part, but if we don't change that culture and change the policies, you can't bring in the technology to change the business. And I'll tell you, if you think it's hard to be an innovator, try being an innovator in government. Risk-averse, you know, what is the status quo, and change the innovation scene as a threat. And I saw that many times. People very threatened because they've been kind of working their way up in the system, and you all of a sudden come and, and look like you're going to threaten or mock the boat. And there's always three stages of attack on an innovator, maybe in other areas as well. First, they will attack your technical credibility. And then they will attack your professional credentials. And if that doesn't work, they will attack you personally. And I've been through that cycle more times than I care to count. But I had to remind my team as we were going through the cycle as well, again, that threatening with words but not with lies and why we and who we're representing and why we have to have the courage, our convictions, and why we have to speak up because people's lives are on the line. And the advice I give to innovators is you, you have a great idea, get by it from the top because top cover is golden, but remember the middle of management, you also have to figure out what motivates them. And I was ignorant up front thinking, God and country, everybody in government service is about God and country. No, no, they're not. You know, some of them are very focused on personal agendas or they're very worried about the next promotion and figuring out what motivates them and how to describe what you're proposing in words that they would understand and how they can see the benefit to them. 
And then finding those who need what you have and leverage the early adopters. To me, you know, the, the desperate users were your best customers because they were willing to try everything, give something new, give you great feedback. And so they can create that critical mass where all of a sudden you're not carrying the water. They're saying this is a great idea and we need to change. And don't take no from someone who can't give you a yes in the first place. Don't be stopped by that. Trust your gut instinct. Listen to your intuition. And I will tell you in life, you will look back on the things you regret or when you ignored that still small voice. And don't let somebody else rationalize it away from you. Listen to that gut instinct. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself and your convictions. And embrace risk. It's what made our country great. And there's a quote from Moneyball that I think is great. The first one through the wall always gets bloody. Every time this happens, the people holding the reins go crazy. It's threatening the way they do business, their livelihood, their jobs, the way they do things. Anyone who's not using your model, that being really beans model in this case, they're dinosaurs. Be purpose-driven. That is what's going to give you true happiness, not careerism. It's not about the money and titles. And I tell you, knowing that your life mattered for something and a purpose is what really and do not tolerate a core value mismatch with your boss, with your team, with your company or organization. Get out of there and find a place where you fit. And have the courage to speak truth to power because America and the world is counting to do so. If we remain quiet, we will lose what we hold most dear. And some things are worth fighting for, faith and family and freedom. And as Gandhi said, be the change you wish to see in the world. There's a quote from Margaret Mead I love as well, is never doubt that a small group of committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And remember, you are absolutely never too young to lead. So create a network of like-minded people who help you make it happen. And I'll tell you, my network is very eclectic, from crew cuts to ponytails. And you do not look the same on the outside, but you look inside, but your core the same. Mission-focused, purpose-driven, very dedicated individuals. And those are people who make it happen. Not the hierarchy on the org chart. Those are the people who make it happen, those relationships. And remember, networking is working. Coming to events like this are wonderful. You network with each other, keep that contact information, you never know when you're going to reach out again. And Pythagoras said, choices are the hinges of destiny. And Abraham Lincoln said, the best way to protect your future is to create it. So the future is yours to define. So have the courage of your convictions, and don't back down strong. And so given my subject is impossible, I'm going to leave you with a quote from Muhammad Ali, which I love. I posted it up in our office and remind my team. Impossible is just a big word thrown around by small men who find it easier to live in the world they've been given than to explore the power they have to change it. Impossible is not a fact. It's opinion. Impossible is not a declaration. It's a dare. Impossible is potential. Impossible is temporary. Impossible. So in conclusion, I believe that life is precious. Every one of us is here for a purpose. So use your talents, follow your passion, find your purpose, engage the culture, and change the world. Thank you so much, Michelle. I think we have time for one question. If anyone has a question, or just like raise your hand by the mic. Okay. Hi, this is loud. Um, my name is Katie O'Keefe, and I'm from Miami University. Um, today, there's a lot of discussion, particularly with the page gap, uh, pay gap, 
but also with women in science-oriented fields and how it's a male-dominated industry. And there's a debate as to whether that's a choice that women make or if it's socialized into young girls. And so now there's a push, like Barbie has her own engineering firm and all those kinds of things. So I was wondering, what is your opinion on that and why you think it's important that there are more women in science or think that's important, or what solutions do you think well, you, are for that issue? If you, there's this book, uh, nowadays it's still pickle, men are from Mars, men are from Venus, right? We are wired differently. We think differently. We approach things differently. And those differences are to be greatly appreciated and valued. And what I see is multidisciplinary teams. So even in the world of cybersecurity, if we only approach it from a technical perspective, we will fail. Because you need to look at it from a psychological perspective and from many other perspectives. And people who have often different educations and life experiences will approach something differently. There's a book by Malcolm Gladwell called Blink. And it talks about kind of how that gut instinct, how you know. And so much of being an engineer called data points in life. Those data points in life that instinctively just something tells you this, you know, if you have an insight. We all have different perspectives, different upbringings, different life experiences, and men and women because we think differently. I think the best teams, it's, it is proven in data that boards that are male only, those companies don't do nearly as well as those who have board of directors who are males and females on them. And so I think it's very important that we embrace those differences and that we see the value in them. And I do believe, I told you the biases, even as I was leaving Governor's lab, 40-something, you still tell me I'm too I, I literally was helping and then a three-star um, officer, and we were like peers rank-wise, but he was a director, taking something we had done, kind of a staining of a task force and kind of making it permanent and taking it over. And hands down, the most qualified person to go read this. And he looked at me, he says, you are very young, and because you are female, putting you in a visible position of leadership would be an appearance of favoritism. And I looked at him and I thought, oh my goodness, the all still exists. And you know, there's all like, there's you know, tons of EO complaints that could be filed. That's just the way people think. And unfortunately, the biases are still there. And I tell you, having been on hiring committees and some of the discussion we've heard before, absolutely, if you were the second or not chosen, you follow up, because sometimes the first one didn't work out, and maybe there's another job that comes up. But um, there is still a lot of bias there. And there can be, um, I mean, I worked in a job in DC area, and I had men doing equivalent work in Melbourne, Florida, who were making 15 grand more a year than me, and I lived in a higher cost living area. And it's just, it was a bias. And so you definitely have to look out for that and don't shortchange yourself. And I think a lot of times women do, we're afraid that if we're assertive, we're going to be labeled, certain B word or something else. And so, but having that, um, that self-worth, Standing up for yourself is very important. So I'd say in summary, yes, the biases are still there, unfortunately, and we still are having a way to go. I'm not totally about the quotas and all of that because I think that it downplays when a woman does get a job that oh, you just got it because you know quota, which is unfortunate. But I think the more we embrace that multidiscipline and multi um, diversity thought, diversity of approaches. Okay.